morning. Again, it is my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. Now, if you have your Bible with you, or you have it somewhere nearby electronically, let me ask you to turn with me in it to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, we're actually going to be looking at just a portion of what's listed in your bulletin there. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, um, which I'll read in just a moment. Um, while I'd be forever lost without um, the use of GPS on my phone, and my family knows how real that is, that would be, uh, that I would be very lost without it. I miss having an atlas. My family, I grew up in, a, in Wisconsin, I, a small town in Wisconsin, but my, fa- my parents and extended family are all from North Carolina. So every summer we spent 22 hours driving south, for, spent a couple weeks there and drive 22 hours back, and my siblings and I would actually argue over who got to hold the atlas and look at it. And it, it, because it was fascinating to see not only like kind of where the highways are and how it all works together, but to kind of see the big picture of where you're going and how you're getting from point A to point B. And that's the one thing I miss about having a GPS on my phone is I don't have to care about that. It just tells me what, to, what the, the next thing to do is. And then the next thing after that, and I just follow that, and nine times out of 10, I get where I'm supposed to be when I pay attention to it correctly. Um, I tell you that because I want you to think of the book of Ephesians as a bit of an atlas, as a bit of an atlas or a bit of a map for us. Um, What the Apostle Paul does in this book, in this brief six-chapter book, is he sets out for us eternally, globally, the impact of the message of Jesus Christ on his people and how we fit into that place. In in the first chapter, in in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, before the foundation of the world as a starting point. And then later in chapter 1, he says, to unite all all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Then at the end of chapter 3, he says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. He's laying out for us eternity. And he's laying out for us heaven and earth. These big picture views of the saving work of God through Jesus applied by his spirit. But then what he does is time and again throughout this letter is he turns attention back to his readers and in effect says, This is the whole map of God's saving work, and here is where you are right now. Here's the big picture, and now let's talk about where you are right now and how this impacts your life. What we're going to see in chapter 3 this morning is he's doing that even for himself and his own ministry. He places his work on this map, and then here in verses 7 to 13 in particular, he talks about why his work matters. This one I'll read for us, though. If you follow along, um, we'll be reading from uh, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, all the way through verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me pray for us as we approach the the word together. Merciful, gracious, holy God, 
we pray again this morning that you would send out your light and your truth. That you would lead us, even as we sit and stand here this morning, that you would lead us to the place where you dwell, to your holy place, to the place where you are, that we might behold you in your beauty, in your goodness, in your truth, in your grace, and in your mercy. And in seeing you more clearly, Father, we pray that we might be changed. Father, it's not something we can accomplish on our own. It's not something that we could even will on our own. And so we ask and trust in the work of your Spirit. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. The Toy Story movies are an amazing picture of creating a world within a world. If you've not seen them, it's, it's a series of movies where, where there's toys that come to life when, they're, when their humans aren't around. And yet, fascinatingly, they, they, they have this self, they're self-aware enough to know that they are still toys. They know their limitations. But it's fascinating to watch this play out in this little world within this world. In the first movie, you meet Buzz Lightyear, who's introduced as the Space Ranger. He's the fancy new toy in the bunch. And as they, as they talk, he's, got, you know, he's showing off his wings and his laser, and all the other toys are just, this is the coolest thing we've ever seen in our, world, in our lives. This is amazing. But Woody, sort of the, the old standby, the leader of the toys, if you will, he's just a stuffed cowboy, he says this. He says, he's not a space ranger. And Buzz says, yes, I am. And he clicks a button and his wings pop out of the back of his of the thing and he shoots his laser and, and, and it lights up. And Woody responds, those are plastic. He can't fly. And then Buzz, of course, re replies with this. They're terillium carbonic alloy and I can fly and I'm going to show you. I can fly around this room with my eyes closed. And Buzz proceeds to do just that. If you remember, he, he jumps in the air and he bounces on this ball and a series of things happen and it makes it look like he flies. He lands on this roller skate and he goes through this loop and he ends up on the mobile fl flying around the room and the toys are just like astounded. But Woody in his cynicism responds, that wasn't flying, that was falling with style. I want to start there to think about the church this morning. In verse 10, it's where the word shows up, but really that's what this whole passage is all about. In fact, what a good chunk of chapter 2 and the rest of chapter 3 are all about as well. But I want to start there because we live between those two perspectives of Woody and Buzz when it comes to faith and when it comes to life together in the church. Because on the one hand, some of, and some of this is personality, some of it's for, for other reasons, but for, for, for some of us, we, lo we look at our lives, we look at our life in church, we look at the Christian life and we think, I'm just not all that, I just don't have that much going on. I don't have my life put together. I'm just, I'm just weak or I'm just weak of faith or I'm just not very courageous. And that's all we see is sort of the limitation. And yet there's this other side, the buzz side if we can call it, that, that, that embraces the, the promises and the beauty of Scripture so much that, that we think we're impenetrable, that we're unstoppable, that life is great, and that there shouldn't be any sadness, and there shouldn't be anything wrong, and, and we, we should just get over it and move on. We live between these two perspectives. The perspective that says, I'm really flawed, and there's, there's not a whole lot of hope, or the perspective that says, I've got so much hope that I'm not even going to pay attention to my flaws. We live in that place. And it's hard, because usually what happens is we bump into reality, and reality says otherwise to us. For those who are frustrated, with, who only see the darkness, and only see the despair, these good things actually show up in your life, and you think, where'd this come from? It, it can't be for me, so I'm, I'm going to ignore it and set it aside. 
Or, or the other perspective that says life is only great and life is only perfect and I don't have to worry about anything. When bad things come your way, you don't know what to do with it. And either it drives you to despair and actual cynicism or you just ignore it and try to move on with life. We live between those two poles. We feel like, we, we understand when, when Woody says, that's not flying, and yet we understand when Buddy, Buzz says, of course I can fly. Are you flying or are you falling with style? How do you see yourself? How do you see life in the church with God's people? I wanna start there because of what, what the Apostle Paul says at the end of verse 13. Because his conclusion to this section is, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He's telling us all that he's, about, that he's going to tell us that we're going to talk through this morning because he doesn't want us to grow weary. He doesn't want us to be frustrated. He doesn't want us to lose heart. And yet he wants to instill us with real hope, not false hope. With, with re, not just optimism, but, but genuine, true, honest faith and hope in what God is doing in our lives and through us. And so he concludes by saying, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to lose heart. You see, Paul is writing these letters from prison somewhere. We're not fully sure where. It's either Rome or one of the other options that, that the, we know that he was in, in jail. And he was in jail for preaching the gospel. Now, it may seem odd that that would be an embarrassment, but, but, you, but imagine, you know, think of, if you think about it in terms of any time like, we'll go really extreme here. Any, anytime a cult leader or somebody like that is caught by the police and put in jail for lying and cheating and embezzling, you know, those outside of the cult are like, yes, we got him, we're right, and he was wrong. But for those inside, they feel a sense of shame because their leader has been caught. And I, and I wonder if there's some measure of that in terms of what the, apostle, what the apostle is trying to convey. His people are realizing that he's in prison for preaching the gospel that changed their lives. And they're thinking, is this it? Is this, is, this, is this over now? We're embarrassed because our leader, the one we trusted and the one who brought us truth, isn't able to do that. But he says, I'm writing this to you so that you do not lose heart. And I ask you not to lose heart. So what does he give us in this text to lead us to that place of not losing heart? The first thing I want us to talk about is how the, the picture of the church is of a, a community of God's people gathered by grace. And I want us to see this as a starting point. You see, the, the foundation of the church is God's grace, his favor given to his people, his kindness and his patience, which Paul says is demonstrated in his very existence. If you look at, back at verse 7, he's to, the gospel that he's referring to is the message, and we're going to unpack this in just a moment, the message that he has about Jesus but notice what he says in verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me, was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see what Paul is saying, and, and Paul was the one that, that brought the gospel in its fullest form to the city of Ephesus, the people reading these words for the first time. And so what he's saying is he's saying, I'm doing this because God's power was at work in my life, because that's what it took. You see, part of understanding that the church is founded on the grace of God is understanding that the nature of our need. That's what Paul's saying. Notice how he describes himself there again in verse seven or verse eight. He says, I, though I am the very least of all the saints. In 1 Corinthians 15, he elaborates on this. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. You see, before Paul preached the name of Jesus, he did what he could to try to snuff out the name of Jesus, literally. And one occasion, he was given orders to go to Damascus and arrest Christians for, belief, for the sole fact of believing in Jesus. And on his way there, a light shone and he saw the risen Lord Jesus, he tells us, and it changed everything about his life. But what Paul is acknowledging here is the very need that he had, that he was worse than others, that he was inferior to, that he was less than the lowest is the language that he's using here. I am least of all the apostles. I don't deserve this, he's saying. I am a man of need, and it's because of God's grace meeting that need that everything has changed. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says this. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and true and, and trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul, this is the guy that wrote like half the New Testament. Like he wrote the Bible and he's saying, I'm the least, I'm the worst sinner. Because he knew the nature of his heart towards God apart from the grace of God working in his life. He knew what it was to be a man of need. And he wasn't afraid to talk about that, even to his fellow Christians. But look at verses 8 and 9. Not only do we see great, the, the need that leads us to God's grace, but we see the task that flows from God's grace here as well. Again, look at verses 8 and 9. I read part of this already. Um, in verse 8 he says, and the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The task of Paul was to preach the name of Jesus. He says there to everyone. He was Jewish. He was steeped in his traditions of his people. And he realized, because Jesus appeared to him, he realized and learned that, that was, even that was not enough. All his learning, all his ability to know the law and to follow the law, all his, all his desire to kill Christians, to imprison Christians, to snuff out Christianity, none of that was enough. The task was to preach, to bring more in, to open the doors, to bring the fold in, to say the gospel is not simply for the Jews, God's people of old, but it's for Jew and Gentile, which means Jews and everybody else. That's us, the nations. This is part of, this, this task came even to us. In Colossians 1, he described it more fully this way. He said, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The task of grace in Paul's life was to make this message known, was to proclaim far and wide that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the one for whom the people of God of old were waiting, and yet He is here for all because it is built into God who created everything. It is part of God's design. 
Now I want to tell you that this, this mystery language here is actually really fascinating because what Paul is picking up on, he knows his audience really well. You see in, in the first few centuries especially, there were religions that, that we speak of now as mystery religions, which, which means there was some like the secret knowledge kind of thing that, that happened. And, and basically you had to get initiated into the club. And from what I understand, you were actually never fully told all the mystery, but like they held this mystery in such high esteem that it was like that, that's what they began to worship. And that sort of shaped this view. And if, and if you were in the club, you were in the club and treated as if you knew everything even though you didn't know the mystery. But Paul picks up on that to say, we kind of have a mystery but the mystery's wide open. The doors have been opened. The, the, the shades have been pulled up. The sunlight is coming in to see clearly what God is doing in his world. And it's what God had been doing all along. His point is that when Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, it all became abundantly clear. And he talks about it. He uses the word riches, wealth. Not because he's promising that we won't have any financial problems in this life, but because he wants us to know that that's the closest thing that we could maybe understand to what it is that Jesus offers by his grace. The riches of his glory is yours through faith in the Lord Jesus. All that you need, eternally speaking, is yours. And he invites us to see it this way. The church is the people of God gathered by grace because of our, and it takes grace because we are a people of need, and the task of grace takes us outward. Writer Stephen King once wrote about an interaction that he had with a very religious mom of one of his classmates. This, is, this mom had hired him to actually move some furniture around their home. And as he, as he showed up, and this was not a, the, the classmate was not someone he knew well, but he knew her sort of by reputation. But he, he showed up to move some furniture, and the main room of their home was this giant painting of the crucified Jesus. And now, as far as I know, Stephen King is, is not a follower of Jesus. He doesn't consider himself a Christian, I don't believe. But he walks in and sees this giant painting. And it's one of those paintings that every detail of this work was highlighting the brutal suffering and shame that Jesus endured. Every detail, every, every stroke, every mark on the, this picture is to tell you that Jesus suffered. It was overwhelming for him. And he, just, he walked into the room, and that's the thing that caught his eye because it was gigantic. And he sat there and stared at it for a while. And eventually, the, the mom saw him looking at it, and she said, that's Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Have you been saved, Steve? And Steve, of course, I think to, to dissuade any further conversation, quickly responded that he was as saved as saved could be. But though he, he later reflected that he didn't think you could ever be good enough to have that version of Jesus intervene on your behalf. You could see it on his face, he wrote. If that guy came back, he probably wouldn't be in a saving mood which is a fascinating perspective on Jesus, on the suffering Jesus, that, that King would acknowledge that he could never be good enough to have that version of Jesus intervene on his behalf. And if that Jesus, the one who suffered, came back, he wouldn't be in a saving mood. Can we be good enough to be saved by someone like that who suffered in our place? The answer is no. The heart of the gospel is, is we're never going to be good enough. And in fact, we don't want to be good enough because left to ourselves, we would run away from God himself. We would run from Jesus and want nothing to do with him. And yet God, by his grace, enters into our lives, enters into our world and brings salvation because we are in such need that we could not accomplish it or even will it or want it on our own. 
Grace meets us in a place where we think we have to be a certain amount of good in order to be saved. The need and the task takes us elsewhere to other people. I want to reflect on this for a second with, with us together. The need of grace for you means this. To profess to be a Christian is to acknowledge two basic things. You are a sinner and Jesus is the Savior. You are a sinner. Which again means far more than simply you're not enough. It means far simply more than you don't quite get it right. And there, you just need to be a better version of yourself and Jesus is going to help you be the better version of yourself. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you would reject Christ left to yourself, that you are dead in your sins and trespasses, and you need the Savior. And that's the hope that we have. That Jesus is the Savior, that He is enough. No matter what you've done, even this morning on your way here, He is enough to deal with your sin and to save you. But as a church, as those gathered by grace, by this message, this gospel, what comes with this is this, there's an inseparable part to it, and that is it, it drives us to other people. Because if that's true of us, if I don't have to measure up to you, that means I don't have to be scared of you and what you think of me and what you think of what's wrong with me. I don't have to keep a distance away from you. I don't have to hide we don't have to hide from each other. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of this grace, is that the task opens the doors and invites us into each other's lives, into each other's homes, to, to talk about what's hard. We don't need to be shocked when we find out that we've made mistakes, that we've sinned, that we've done things that we're ashamed of. Why would we be, why would we be surprised by that? To profess to be a Christian actually acknowledges that from the beginning. We're driven to one another. We're driven to our neighbors because the gospel is true. We are a people gathered by grace because of our need and to this task. But there's something else I want you to see beginning in verse 10, and it's simply this. Not only are we gathered by grace, but we're gathered for glory. We're gathered for glory. Paul doesn't stop his encouragement here simply with the thought of God's power and work to save his people, though that is plenty to stop and camp out on for weeks at a time. But he wants us to see something else in our discouragement, in our frustration with life as it is even now, with one another, with our family, with our church, with our denomination. Whatever your discouragement is, whatever side of whatever issue is on, he doesn't want you to lose heart. Look at verse 10 and see what he says. He continues on to say this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Paul says that this is the trajectory of God's grace in his people. That God's wisdom might be on display for creatures that we can't see or really even understand. And it's going to be on display not through our best versions of ourselves, what we pretend, but through us, through this church, through the gathering of people who need grace because they have no other hope before them. God is saying, I want to put this on display. 
I'm going to show off my wisdom through you. Through you. Now, who are these beings, the, the rulers and authorities he addresses? I'll be honest with you, it's, it's not clear in the text. Now, earlier in Ephesians, in, in chapter 1, we read this, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which seems to speak of this, these heavenly places as the place where God is. And in fact, later in chapter 1, he talks about Jesus, Jesus as the one who, who he seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. These heavenly places are the places where Jesus is. But then in chapter 2, he says this, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, in effect, by the work of the Spirit, we're with Jesus in these heavenly places. And all that is there is, is there for us. Those are the blessings that he's given his people, the power of heaven in our lives to follow him faithfully. And yet in chapter 6, he says this, Paul writes this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he's adding a, a, another dimension here to this. He see, he's seeming to be saying that there are, there are beings that he's calling rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, principalities, maybe some of the language that you're used to hearing there. And it's not flesh and blood. It's not simply other people. But he's saying there are evil things in this, in this existence, in the heavenly places that you can't see, that we don't fully understand, that are there to destroy you. And that is who we wrestle against. That is what we wrestle against. But here in the middle of this book, he's saying, I'm going to put my wisdom on display even for those beings to know my wisdom, to know my power, to know my glory. And I'm going to use people who are frail, who can be obnoxious, who can be impatient, who can be arrogant. I'm going to use people like you and me to show the rulers my power and my wisdom and the beauty of all that I could accomplish and, and, and imagine. I'm going to show this to them through you. Y'all, that's glory. That's glory. To think that the angelic beings, good and evil, that exists somewhere that we can't see, that if we saw them in person, we would fall and be tempted to worship them because of their beauty and their perfections. Even those things don't understand this, and God wants to put it on display through you and me in all of our frailty and all of our sinfulness and all of our need because his wisdom and his plan and his power are enough because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. But notice the other part of this glory. It's not just simply knowing the wisdom of God. He also speaks of enjoying access to God. Look at verse 12 in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Because of Jesus, we have access. This isn't arrogance or flippancy. It's not cowering in fear, but it's boldness and confidence to approach our king, to approach God. We all have that friend, right, that, that says what's on his mind or her mind without even thinking about it, that we, that we at times envy. The person is bold enough to say, to say true things to their friends that, that we think makes us all cringe. And then you're like, but secretly you're thinking, yeah, I wish I was like that person. That's what we're invited to do is to speak with honesty, speak with frankness, speak with where we are to the God of the universe who knows our thoughts intimately and fully and loves us regardless. Because of Jesus, we can approach him with boldness and confidence. I told this story before, but I love the imagery. In the movie Anna and the King, which is a, the, the movie version of The King and I, we meet the king of, si of Siam at the time, 
who is treated like a god. He's a deity. In fact, in the throne room, the throne is set on pedestals, on steps above everyone else because no one could have their head the same height as the king. And, and whenever the king enters the room, all of his, his ministers and officers actually fall to the ground in worship because they see the king as authoritative. And be, they see him as divine, actually, and it's the way that it works out in the story. And in fact, one of the rules is that men or women could not be allowed in the king's presence because he is God. And in, in their thinking, men were better than women. And so when Anna, the teacher, shows up to teach the, all the king's children, they call, him, they call her sir as a way of getting around that rule because otherwise she wouldn't be able to be in the presence of the king. He was deity. He was divine. And yet there's this scene where you, where you, you see the king is on his, on, his, on his throne area. Again, his head is raised above everybody else in the room and all his ministers are on their knees bowing before him, talking so humbly and contritely to this man. And one of his children needs something and just bounds into the room and runs, runs down the center aisle and runs into the king's arms because that's allowed because he's their son. That's the access that you and I have to God the Father. The access that we have is that his arms are open and he invites us to come to him with boldness, with confidence, not to think about what we say before we have to say it, but to approach him and to run to him and to find that he is ready and willing and able to listen. Beloved, we are gathered for glory, even on a rainy Sunday morning like this. We are gathered for this glory. God's wisdom is on display through us, even to his enemies, even to our enemies. God is saying, I'm working through you in such a way that it will be clear that I have no equal. What are you afraid of? What do you find yourself anxious about? And, I, and I'm not trying to oversimplify our anxieties or our fears. But the things that we, that we cower in fear about in the workplace, in the school, in the classroom, in our neighborhoods, what will they think of me? What will they think of me if I bow out because it's Sunday morning and I need to go to worship? What will they think of me by the way that I speak? What will they think of me with, with what I spend my money on and what I'm willing to give my money to? God, is, God has his power on display even through your weakness. And beloved, you have access. The Father invites you into his presence to tell you that you have access to him. We, were, we are gathered for glory. Grace and glory. We lose grace and we're left with false confidence, with arrogance, with pride to think that we're better than everyone else. We lose glory and we miss the big picture of what God is doing. Grace and glory through the church, even through us. There's a picture of this in the Old Testament that I read, came across recently that I'd forgotten about. It's from 1 Samuel, yes, 1 Samuel chapter 22 where David is, is on the run because people are after his life because that was, he's the king, but that, that was what his life was. But at one point in chapter 22, we read this, that David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard, that, heard it, they went down from there to him. Now listen to the, who is gathered to the king. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. This is God's man that God has to lead his people. And who's being gathered to him? Not the strong, not the mighty, not the powerful, not the wealthy. Everyone who is in distress, who is in debt, who is bitter in soul, gathered to him. What a picture of the gathering of God's people. If you're in debt, if you're in distress, if you're bitter in soul this morning, even with us, 
you're welcome here because God has gathered us here by his grace. It's what we see throughout Scripture, isn't it? Who, who are the people that God chooses? He saves humanity through a man named Noah who ends up getting drunk and embarrassing himself before his sons. He chooses Abraham and Sarah who are old, and he says, you're going to be the, father, you're going to be the parents of, of, my, of my people. And they're well into their 90s by this point. They, haven't had, they don't have any kids. And they laugh at God, and God still chooses them and uses them anyway. We think about Gideon, the man who is cowering in fear because the, the enemies of God were rising against his people. And he's literally hiding, and God says, I'm going to use you to lead an army. Oh, but wait, it's not the army you think it's going to be. I'm going to pare it down and make it really small. And you're not going to have weapons. You're going to have flames and torches, and you're going to yell, and you're going to defeat the enemy that way. He's going to choose a man like Samson, who cannot control his urges to save his life, literally. And it's the man that God chooses to save his people. David, an adulterer and a conniver. God says he's a man after my own heart because of my power in him, not because of what he's accomplished. We see this again and again and again. This is the picture of the church. Beloved, don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. The gospel is indeed true. We are gathered because of this gospel, and we are gathered for the glory that God has awaiting for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know our cynicism, and you know our experiences that tell us, could this really be true? Could gl your glory really await us? Could it be what you have in store for us? We know well too, all too well our failings and our weaknesses and our, and our frailty. And yet by your grace, you call us together. Father, continue to renew us and remind us of the truth. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.